0: Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall.
1: And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I'm the host, Kevin Randall. I'll be joined in just a moment with uh, William Puckett, who runs a website that's filled with all kinds of fascinating uh, up to the minute sightings. But before we start, I wanted to talk for a moment about something that plagues me periodically. Uh, I've been working on a book called Understanding Roswell. It was uh, suggested to me by a publisher. And anytime a publisher comes to you and wants to buy a book it's always, yeah, (laughs) what, what do you need type thing. But as I was going through the material on Jesse Marcel Sr. Uh, I ran into a bit of a problem and and it's something that uh, I'm not sure a lot of people worry about. But I always thought of Jesse Marcel Jr., of course, as a friend and a a fellow soldier. We both served in Iraq at different times. And reading the material from his father and various sources, including Linda Corley's book, uh, For the Sake of My Country, some of the interviews that he had conducted, some of the things that he had said, it seemed to me that he engaged in a bit of willful embellishment of his resume. I'm not sure I really want to call it lying, although in essence, I guess you should say that's what it was, but it bothered me because of the high esteem the family held him in. And one of the examples, I think maybe the best example is he made a big deal about having performed an appendectomy on a soldier while they were serving in the Pacific during the Second World War. And he was guided by the local, by a, a surgeon over the radio, one of those kind of things. The surgeon wasn't there and the guy needed the operation like right this minute and Jesse Marcel supposedly performed it. When Linda Corley was interviewing him and the tapes are available and in her book, uh, the, you can read the transcripts as well, You get to the point where he starts to tell this story and his wife Vo says, oh, not that story again. And you make it, it just causes you to wonder for a moment, was he making it up? Does she know that he was making it up? It's just one of the war stories that people tend to tell type of thing. But it grows on beyond that. When he, um, the family said that he had received a soldier's medal. And a soldier's medal is given not necessarily for Valor, but of course Valor can play into it. Um, not necessarily for saving a life, but saving a life can play play into it. It's, it's a fairly high decoration in the military and uh, suggests some kind of outstanding performance. I have a complete copy of his 201 file. This is before the Internet went nuts and uh, everybody started stealing identities and the information became uh, protected by the Privacy Act, and probably rightly so, I might might add. But I've got a complete copy of the 201 file. I've got his officer ratings. I've got letters back and forth with various people. And the problem is there's no mention of a soldier's medal anywhere in there his Bronze Star is mentioned in there, his Air Medals are mentioned in there. I even found out one of the ribbons I couldn't identify in the black and white picture of him that I have was the Philippine Liberation Medal. I didn't know they gave one for that, but uh, that's apparently, he, that was his sixth, sixth award and I couldn't identify it. I could identify the Bronze Star and the Air Medal and the other, other awards that he had, but I couldn't identify that one. So you have to wonder about that because it's an important part of the whole picture. I mean, is his testimony reliable? And I'm thinking that if we had only Jesse Marcel's testimony about the events in Roswell in 1947, we could pretty well eliminate him at this point. Fortunately, um, I and many others have talked to other members of Colonel Blanchard's staff, Marcel being on Blanchard's primary staff as the intelligence officer, but we talked to Edwin Easley, we talked to uh, Thomas Dubose, who was the uh, chief of staff, which was a very, very important position. I talked to Joe Briley, who was the operations officer, for example. So we have other people involved in this telling us other aspects of the story. So we have corroboration for what Marcel said. The problem I run into is how much of that information do I release? Uh, is it necessary to do that? I mean, the family will be upset. Family's going to be upset now, I suppose. Um, I would have never said anything about this if Jesse Jr. was still alive because of the high esteem he held his father. I've run into this in other places where I have pointed out the information. Robert Willingham comes to mind immediately who talked about the Del Rio crash, and it was clear that he was not the Air Force colonel he claimed to be, and a lot of the things he said were not true. Jesse Marcel is a slightly different uh, fish, if you, if you want to go that direction, because he uh, did serve in the positions he talked about. He did hold the rank that he talked about, which is some of the things he sort of embellished. So I kind of throw that out there. I'm always kind of conflicted in some of these cases about releasing all the information, although it does have an impact on the viability of the story and the truthfulness of the individual telling that. Um, clearly, he was involved in the retrieval operation, meaning e- even if you want to go from a skeptical point of view of picking up the weather balloon and taking it to... Um, to Fort Worth, or he picked up pieces of a flying saucer and took them to Fort Worth. I mean, that part of the story is true and we have documentation from the newspapers and everything else that, that prove that sort of thing. So that's kind of a dilemma I find myself in. Maybe it's my old age getting to me of being a little bit more respective of uh, others and their, their secrets. I just thought I would mention that and I didn't mean to drag it out this long because I know William Puckett's there and he's got a lot of good information for us Um, And I'll just note here that he is, he was employed as a meteorologist with the National Weather Service for three years and the Environmental Protection Agency for 27 years. He retired from government service in 2007. He is a professional member of the American Meteorological Society. He has uh, worked as a consultant for UFO Hunters, a series on the History Channel. (laughs) I'm not sure i would mention (laughs) that. I've been on some things in the History Channel I wouldn't mention, but I, I digress and make a, Bit of a humor there. Uh, He has appeared on two UFO Hunters episodes. He was appeared in an episode of Science Channel's Close Encounter series, there you go, and was also a research associate for NARCAP, which is the National Reporting Center for Anomalous Phenomenon. That's almost as a crummy (laughs) acronym as the government came up with uh, after the UAP thing. He is credited with meteorologic and radio analysis uh, for the November 7th, 2006 UFO incident at O'Hare Airport. He is formerly the state director for the Mutual UFO Network in Montana. By the way, I've been to Montana, just so you know. (laughs) It's irrelevant to anything, but I just thought I'd mention that. he is a, uh, for, I says a formerly state director of Montana. He is certified field investigator for MUFON, has written several technical articles for the MUFON Journal. He has been guest on many talk shows, including this one in the past, interviewed on some TV programs. He continues with his work as an independent investigator and presents his results of his studies on his website, UFOs Northwest and UFO Sightings Montana. Welcome to A Different Perspective, and I saw I delayed it with my rant there.
0: Thanks, Kevin. Thanks a lot for having me. I, you know, I'd know, i like to say just a few words about the Marcells. I, I did have the opportunity to meet Jesse Marcel Jr. Uh, right after I moved to Montana in 2011. And we had lunch and uh, talked about Roswell. At the particular time, I was doing some research on the Roswell incident uh, for the History Channel for the UFO Hunter series. And I actually uh, showed Jesse some of the data that I'd found, namely that the the weather observer, so to speak, was gone on the day that they flew the wreckage from from Roswell Army Airfield to Carswell Air Force Base in Fort Worth. I find that to be quite interesting. The only uh, facility in the world that had nuclear weapons, right in the peak of the thunderstorm season, which is aviation hazard, and the weather observer seems to be gone. I did find that interesting. Anyhow, I I did really have a nice visit with Jesse Jr. And I interviewed him on a radio program I was hosting at a particular time about his book, and I'd read his book. So uh, I can't speak for the efficacy of of Jesse Marcel Sr. Uh, Obviously, you're, you're pretty well rehearsing that. Although, uh, I will say that some UFO witnesses, even with, so to speak, expert credentials, sometimes break down a bit when you start doing a little bit of research in their backgrounds. Uh, I have found that to be true. Uh, From a personal perspective, uh, talking about my website, I pretty much quit investigating old cases because people don't know the dates, times, and details. I only bring that up because you're, you're talking about uh, validity of witnesses and old cases are very much dependent on the validity of witnesses and being a scientist I like to get my hands on data on forensic data, namely photos videos and sometimes trace evidence so. On that basis, I, uh, I've given lower priority to older cases. So the cases you'll see on my website, particularly recent cases posted, will be cases that, that within the past year or two. So I just thought I would mention that.
1: Let me say yeah. one thing here. We, we need to distinguish between Mess- Jesse Marcel Sr. and Jesse Marcel Jr. And I've met Jesse Marcel Jr. many, many times. Uh, we've had many, many uh, conversations and I find him to be an impeccable source. I found nothing that he su- would suggest he embellished anything or was less than candid about what was going on. I think he was a very respect, uh, re- respectful in- individual. I think uh, a very honorable in- uh, individual. I think it's a better way of saying that. Um, I distinguish between him and his father. I know that there was a great bond between the two of them. And that was why I'd be hesitant to say anything if Jesse Jr. was still alive, simply because of the bond between the father and the son. But moving beyond that, I was going to ask you later on in the program, and we have just a few moments here, um, in looking at your website, I notice that periodically you make comments. Do you do much of the way of investigating when the reports come in? I, I know you have lots of reports coming into the, to your website. Do you do much investigation or analysis?
0: I do as much as I can, but for the most part, cases that I get, you know, I don't go out and investigate them. I mean, I get cases all over the world. You know, I I collect maps and and try to get photos and videos. And what I I actually find quite useful using the WordPress uh, protocol, the blog format, is that I rely quite somewhat on comments from people. And I do get some pretty good comments. And any cases that have photos or videos, I put on my homepage so they have more visibility, and so I'm more likely to get comments. But wherever possible, you know, I'll I'll ask for radar data, and some once in a great while, I'll ask them to collect evidence for me, and then I'll send that evidence in. That has not happened in the past few years. But I have a material specialist and also uh, or an, an organic chemist, Phyllis Bunninger, that is at no cost, ha, has done some work for me. She's a MUFON member. So in answer to your question, you know, I don't, I don't do a lot of investigation, but I don't just take everything for granted either. You know, I will look at uh, astronomical data, satellite data. Uh, meteorological data. So, you know, that that's kind of the scope of my investigation. But for the most part, sometimes I, you know, I just put the case out there and then and, and rely on comments using my blog format.
1: Well, we'll get back to this in a minute here. Uh, especially, I want to talk to you a little bit about the Starlink satellites, I think, which are responsible for a great number of uh, sightings in at least in the last few months or the last couple of years. We'll get back to that in a minute. We're going to have to take a break. I wanted to mention uh, my blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. You mentioned a uh, home page or something. Is, there a, a, uh, is that a website that we can all visit? Uh, you want to get an address there?
0: Absolutely. It's www.ufosnw.com. And my other blog, which you mentioned at the head of the show for Montana UFO sightings is montana www.ufosightings, plural, montana.com.
1: Well, for those yeah. of you who want to remember it easily, if you take a look at the, uh, the one website, it's ufosnorthwest.com. So you can put it all together that way. But it's, uh, as you said, ufosnorthwest.com. Uh, NW. Um, We will be back right after this. William Puckett, we're talking about uh, UFOs, of course, and what's going on in the world of UFO today, and maybe talk a little bit about the new government investigation. So we'll be back in just a moment. So please stick around. And welcome back. I'm here with William Puckett, As you can see, we're not in the same room. We are practicing social distancing as demanded by the government. We're not breathing the same air. We're isolating, I guess is the way to say it. When we went away, we were talking about uh, some of the information that comes to his websites. And I noticed in in reviewing some of that data that an awful lot of it uh, is kind of solved by what I think is called a Starlink satellite. Can you uh, give me a little bit of update on that?
0: Well, there have been several launches, I, I believe, and I might be wrong. I think the first launch was around May of 2019, and there's been several launches since then. And my understanding is that they're there satellites that are designed to beam in high-speed internet for remote locations. And he continues to launch them, uh, for a while they were generating just a huge volume of reports for me. So many that I just quit posting them because there there was no time. Uh, I did get a video of one, I don't know, a couple months ago. I did post it just for the, for information, you know, for the public so that they, when they see them, they don't run to report them to me. Fortunately, I believe, recently or maybe a few months ago, Ellen must tone down the brightness of these things so they're they're not interfering with astronomers as much and they're not generating as many UFO reports and I'm not getting as many Starlink reports anymore and I attribute some of that to the public education, maybe to the dimming of it, of, of, so a combination of those but Yeah, they're they're definitely a problem uh, as far as UFO investigating of, of, uh, you know, causing a high volume of reports. And they're also a problem for astronomers, uh, from what I understand. So, but I believe, and a a matter of fact, I just read this morning, I believe he's going to launch some more pretty soon. So there'll be more up there. So, but yeah, they've definitely been a problem for for. UFO investigators like myself of
1: how to the, the photographs. The photographs you had on the uh, on your blog or your, your website look like a streak of light. Are they just a single object and the streak of light is a reflection of the um, the, is the the exposure of the of the uh, image there, or are there a number of them that are kind of satellites that are kind of linked together? They travel in a pack.
0: Well, they're always very close together. the The typical report that I get with Starlink satellites, twenty to fifty objects moving in a line to the northeast. If if I could, you know, phototype paraphrase a typical Starlink report, that would be what it would be. And they move in a line, and some people will say they're moving fairly rapidly, and and this I attribute to autokinesis. People will say, oh, they jump in and out of formation. That's an optical illusion. And then the actual line that you might see, actual uh, congruent line, would be more to, to probably a, a lens flare type effect. But the, they're typically, physically, I don't know how close they are together. But they're, you know, when you look at them, and some people will see up to 100 too. Uh, movement moving in a line. But that's typically the, to paraphrase the type of Starlink report that I get.
1: Well, as you as you can see, I've spent some time looking looking at your website uh, right. and noticing that a lot of the solutions were Starlink satellites. Uh, you get a photograph, I notice you get a lot of photographs in to this to the website. Um, is there an analysis that you perform on those? I, I notice sometimes you explain, well, this looks like it might be this, that, or the, another thing, but uh, some of them have no explanations. What, what exactly do you do when you get a photograph?
0: Well, the first thing I do when I get a photograph, and most photographs anymore come from cell phones, but some come from regular cameras, I look at what we call the metadata of the photograph. That gives me a little authenticity. Has it been photoshopped? Because if it's photoshopped, it'll show up as a, in the a digital signature in the metadata. But I look, I look at the metadata first. And then, you know, I, I look at the weather conditions and I may ask the witness questions. One thing that criticism that I have a lot of, so to speak, expert photo analysts, they ignore what the witness sees and what the witness says. I think what the witness sees and says is also important. With respect to photo analysis, you know, I mean, you know, what if you're looking at was it a reflection, you know, what did they actually see? Why did they take the photograph? And of course, many photos that I get are after-the-fact photos. People didn't see anything, but they but they look at the photo. Oh, this showed up in the photo. And for example, a lot of people would take photos into the sun or of a sunset, and then they'll see a blue object or such and such. Well, most of that is lens flare effect, particularly with uh, iPhones. iPhones will uh, show a blue or I'm sorry, a green object. So that's what I do. And then
1: and then I'll blow the photo up. Wait, let me ask you a question because you said something interesting. Um, If a person is using a cell phone and takes a picture more or less oriented toward the sun, the the object that they find in their their picture is green. Is that a common thing that it's? Kind of a signature of a of a lens flare?
0: It is for iPhones, yes. And I can't tell you why. I've looked up articles about it from Apple and they'll show that, but I've seen that. And a lot of photo, a lot of my reports come in via cell phone because I have I have forms, mobile forms, and a lot of people will text me photos and videos on the cell phone. And so, you know, I A lot of those are cell phone photos, but you know, that's about the extent of analysis. I will sometimes do an inversion, invert the photo to see if there's lines in it. If someone's got object, you know, uh, flying something or got, got something projected and I'll do contrast enhancements, you know, I'll do brightness enhancements and you know, in videos, I do the same thing. You know, I'll do some enhancements of videos. And, and then if it's, if I suspect and in many cases, that is the situation, Venus, Jupiter, people will take photos, they will blow them up and you will see autofocus Venus or Jupiter and it'll look really strange, you know. And so I'll use astronomical software. I also look at weather weather well, are clouds and a lot of times reflections from ground lights will project off of low clouds. So those are all things that I do.
1: So when you're when you get a photograph in, then you can look at it and you look at what you call the metadata and that provides you with a clue as to whether or not the, the photograph has been manipulated in some fashion. Um, And then you can look at these other aspects of it and determine whether or not there is an explanation for it that might be natural, such as Venus or reflections on the clouds. Is that correct?
0: That's correct. And also, I'll look at uh, heavensabove.com for satellite information. But I, you know, doing those quick and dirty little uh, uh, analyses, you know, I can can make a lot of deductions uh, about photos. Now, I'll cite you an example. I I got a really good case of what I would term a, I called it a uh, Star Trek type object from Libby, Montana, uh, which is in the north part of Montana along U.S. number two. If you ever go to Glacier Park, uh, you'll travel along number two, you'll go through Libby. But when I first looked at it, it was taken by a person traveling in a car at night. So the first thing I said, well, it's got to be a reflection. Taken through a windshield, it's gotta be a reflection sent in the car. But the, the, the gentleman that sent me the photo, I think it was his, I think it was his mother-in-law, I might be wrong, it was a relative. He didn't take the photo. But he, he made a note, look, there's power lines. The power line, the object was on the other side of the power lines, that right there really eliminates or really makes it much less likely, that's a reflection of something inside the car. It makes it more likely that the object was on the other side of the power lines and is in fact a real object. So that's the kind of analysis that I do and and I rely on what the witness tells me too. What did they see?
1: Well, you don't so, post, you don't post everything to your website. Then when you get a picture and you say, "Here's a nice picture," and, and here it is, you you take an analysis and you said, you eliminate some of the some of the um, uh, photographs by your analysis, so they don't get posted to the website.
0: No, that's not correct. I post everything, unless it's an outright hoax. I I do that because I want people to know that. I do look at everything and not, and a lot of cases aren't you. I don't just post unidentified cases. I have a protocol that I categorize cases, you know, how, what their explanation is. I can do that very easily in WordPress in a blog format. For example, all, um, all satellites, um, meteors, uh, lens flares, I categorize them and then unidentified, but I post all cases. Unless they're just outright hoaxes, I'll post them.
1: But when you, when you post them, if you've got a suspicion of what the explanation is, if it's a mundane explanation, you do make a notation of that as well.
0: I do. Absolutely. Sometimes I may not note it, but if they look in the blog format below, uh, when they look at one of my reports, they'll see some underlines, some, uh, some uh, links that say unidentified, lens flare, um, reflection or sometimes uncategorized, anomaly in photo, notice anomaly in photo. That's all below, below the uh, report. And, and sometimes I'll make a few comments in, in my note, notations.
1: Well, I did notice on some of those that you, I, I, the one that I picked up was of course the satellite, uh, the Starlink satellites. Um, do you have, I, I don't suppose it comes into you cause you say a lot of pictures are, are taken by um, cell phone but I've noticed in uh, some other arenas that the uh, witness attempted to take pictures by the cell phone but it didn't work out. They could get just the sound but not the object itself or things like that. Uh, do you get many reports like that?
0: I get reports for, yes. Uh, yeah, I get quite a few where people say yes I took the photo but didn't show up. Sometimes I will ask them send me the photo because i mentioned previously that i can do some enhancements and with enhancements just because it didn't show up in the f- cell phone if i brighten it up or increase the contrast sometimes i can i can uh, find the object that they, that they photograph or videotape also so i asked them to send it to me anyhow and many t- and sometimes of course i don't and also i'll note Cell phones don't always, or, or cameras, don't always do justice to what people see. You know, They may see something that looks quite a bit different than what the, the, the cell phone or the, or the camera will pick up. But, but I do look at it and try to make those notes. So it's always important to, to find out what, what the witness sees. And then a lot of times I get photos, well, the witness doesn't see anything. And sometimes those are interesting. I mean, uh, sometimes those are definitely unidentified cases. I got one, I believe in Yosemite National Park, a really strange case. It goes to the very bottom of my home page. And I cannot explain that. It's, it's almost looks like a a cloaking type phenomenon, very, very strange, but the person didn't see it, but found it after the fact when he later reviewed the photos. Because sometimes that can be several months down the line where they're looking at vacation photos and find something unusual.
1: Okay, well, we're going to have to take another break here in just a moment. I want to point out that there are other fine programs on the XZone Broadcast Network at xzbn.net. I think I got that right this time. Uh, take a look at the list of programs, and there's going to be something that's going to interest you uh, there as well. Not only this program, but in other, other fine programs on it. As I say, look at my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And the latest book is cleverly called Level Land, which is about the Level Land sightings. And I bring that up now because when we come back, I think I'm going to ask you about electromagnetic effects because I know there's a portion of your uh, blog that takes takes a a longer look at that. So we will be back right after this. So please stick around. And welcome back to A Different Perspective. Again, I'm the host, Kevin Randall. I'm sitting here with William Puckett, who has been investigating UFOs probably almost as long as I have, I suppose, and hosts a website at uh, uh, www.ufosnw.com. Com. Sorry, I took so long to get it out, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a ufosnorthwest.com, it's an interesting site to take a look at. Uh, when we went away, we were kind of talking about pictures, and I had mentioned something about the uh, a number of people who have said, well, I tried to take a picture, my cell phone didn't work right, which kind of leads us into electromagnetic effects. And that was why I mentioned uh, the Leveland book is because my book on Leveland deals with the electromagnetic effects, especially those reported around Leveland, Texas in November of 1957. But you have a segment on your uh, website that deals with uh, EM effects, electromagnetic effects. You've got some very interesting cases there as well. Can you share a couple of those? Sure,
0: I'll uh, I'll have to tune into my site here, but I do have a, uh, a, as you pointed a a category for EM effects. And I I use that category for any type of, you know, power outages or vehicle outages or anything, you know, to do with uh, any type of interference. It could be radio. um, And I don't get a lot of those cases but I do get a few and I'd like to add also, and you may be aware of this, Kevin, we have a, a network of units called MADER, MADAR called Multiple Anomalous Data Automated Recording. And I have a unit in my house and it, it is set up to detect electromagnetic changes in the electromagnetic fields. And we get alerts and when we get alerts, we look for other correlation to UFO sightings, and the, the instrument actually detects any of the X Y Z axis changes in a electromagnetic fields. Uh, the unfortunate part of that is when you look at Maxwell's equations, electromagnetic fields are inversely proportional to the cube root of the distance, so they dampen pretty rapidly, but if you have UFO activity, you know, electromagnetic anomalies are quite common. And so I did set up a category on my site for that very reason. And I might, I'll just look at the, the top one on my categories. This is a recent case that I got, although I believe it's an old sighting, in uh, area. Well, actually it's just a little, about, about a year and a half ago, Uh, Mud Lake, Idaho, which is kind of in the central part of Idaho. Looks like it's, looking at the map on my site, it's northwest of Twin Falls, probably about, oh, I would say 150 miles. And the the actual location of the sighting was from Salmon, Idaho, which is, uh, that's about, Salmon and Mud Lake are fairly close, but salmon is quite a bit more well-known. But uh, I'll just kind of paraphrase what the witness said. Uh, I was traveling from Salmon, Idaho, to Idaho Falls, Idaho, on Highway 28 at 3 a.m., about 35 miles to the end of 28, Mud Lake, Idaho. The first thing I noticed was that my Kia Sportage, started running like it was running out of gas. After looking at my fuel gauge and back at the road, there were white disc-shaped UFOs flying clockwise in squadrons of about 20 to 30. They were flying in big circular rotations so wide as each side of the mountain was still heading towards Mud Lake. I stopped my car, got out, and I was concerned something might happen to me. So I got back in my car and took off. I looked to the left side and over the left side of the mountain, there was a huge, long, white craft. I don't know if it was in flight, since it was revealed over the mountain, but this formation of UFOs just flew in clockwise big circles. There must—he puts this in caps. There must be a base somewhere over that mountain. So that's the case, and. it it was kind of an eye opener to me, you know, that he sees UFOs and we first notices his car sputtering. And then he looks to see UFOs. And a lot of times vehicles were shut down completely. uh, Radios were turned off and back on. I've heard of vehicles turning spontaneously back on. Um, I've also heard of magnetism, like uh, objects, uh, can stick to the dashboard, nails or something. Those are the type of effects. There was also a case in Idaho. I don't remember when that was, but uh, there were actual uh, uh, thunder uh, thunder showers in the area, and there was a big bunch of power outages. But we never attributed it to, to, to any uh, any meteorological phenomena, and there were quite a bit of power out and there were strange. A lot of strange lights in the area that night. I don't remember where that was in Idaho, but I know it was in eastern Idaho. So, uh, you know, I, I I also remember a case. Uh, this was in Vaughn, near Vaughn, Idaho. Which, Kevin, you're familiar with Roswell. That's not too far from Roswell, and it was a truck driver.
1: You mean Vaughn, New Mexico?
0: I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yes, Vaughn, New Mexico. Because I
1: was about to say, you know, there's a Vaughn in New Mexico. I've been through many, many times. So yes, what that's talking? what
0: I meant to say. I have too, en uh, route to, to Roswell. But anyhow, uh, he was driving a truck of cars. He had been into Denver to. There were some cars auctioned off at uh, 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 car rental agencies. Were auctioning off cars and. And he picked up a bunch of the used cars and was trucking to El Paso, Texas. So he stopped to take a look at his load and and suddenly he noticed, he felt a lot of tingling on his arms, like his hair was standing on end. And, and, and then his truck turned off. And he looked up and he saw this huge black triangular object moving up from the south. And, and suddenly object just hovered and everything was off and and, uh, he couldn't even uh, get his flashlight to turn on. And so finally, uh, he thought, well, he'd go and back and try to get one of his cars off because, you know, that's what he did in emergencies. And then suddenly his flashlight came on and I believe his truck came on and the vehicle just went in reverse and moved back to the south. So... He hopped in his truck and got out of there. And when he got to El Paso and unloaded cars, he noticed that the, the, he had a wind up clock in his sleeper. And that clock was 13 minutes ahead of all the electronic clocks the electronic clock in his car and the electronic uh, clocks in the vehicles to the back. So, whatever this thing was, it shut everything down for 13 minutes. So that's one case whenever I think of electric EM effects that sticks out. So that, those cases are, are ones that. In, least-
1: in, my, in my book on level land, uh, I have cite four cases where cars change color with the close approach of the wow. UFO, which is kind of bizarre. There's a very limited number of those cases, but it's attributed to a close approach of the UFO. And in, in one of the cases, the wife. When, when the husband got home said, did you buy a new car? Because the car it had either been gray and it turned green or it was green and it turned gray, but it changed color significantly enough that she noticed it and thought he'd bought a new car uh, because of the close approach of the UFO. The other, the other thing I wanted to mention quickly is, yeah, you're right. It's not just vehicle interference that, that we, we see. Most of the cases, the driver must take some kind of action to start the car again. It doesn't spontaneously start. In level land, almost all of the cases, it seemed that the cars needed to be started by the drivers with one exception. And the guy just insisted his car started spontaneously. And the Condon Committee used this to reject the idea of electromagnetic effects on cars because they could think of no mechanism if you suppressed an electrical field by the use of uh, a huge magnetic uh, field that when you remove that field, the car would restart spontaneously. The lights might come back on with the flow of electrons, but they could think of nothing, no mechanism which would cause the car to start spontaneously. And I went through an awful lot of the reports looking at that and discovered that for the most part, it seems that the people were talking about uh, the cars not starting spontaneously. They say things like, well, then the car could be the car started normally or the car operated normally and that sort of thing. So uh in in the book level land i deal with i think several hundred cases both in detail in the book and then in an appendix at the back where talks about that kind of thing so it's kind of an interesting phenomenon Uh, and there's also talking of power outages knocking radio stations off the air and that sort of thing well with the electromagnetic effects but you say you don't get many of those reports
0: you're, you're correct. I, I think I maybe only had one or two of spontaneous starting. For the most part, they have to start the vehicle. I don't specifically recall. I believe, I, I think I said that it spontaneously started as a diesel engine. And diesels, of course, operate different than the, they pre-ignite, you know, and then, and then they start that way. But I, I don't really, I think maybe he did restart the vehicle. I know the flashlights came on and the lights came on, but yeah, I think I've only had one or two where people say the vehicle spontaneously started again. And there were old cases, so you don't even know if people are, again, recalling, you know in detail, the correct detail of what they observed. But for the most part, uh, that's the case. They have to restart the vehicle, but definitely a lot of them shutting down radios and vehicles Power outages, uh, you know, other other uh, effects indoor in the house of strange things happening. That that's true.
1: Well, the th- the thing that strikes me is we had a large number of those cases in 1957 in the United States. There was a large number of cases in France, in South America in 1954, but it doesn't seem that the stalling of the car cars or the electromagnetic effects shutting off. It can be the power in a house, for example. Uh, there's one case where the uh, uh, objects seem to shut off the power in the house and it shut off a car driving down the street and that sort of thing. But we don't we don't seem to get a lot of those. It seems to be a rare subset of the of the overall UFO phenomenon. Do you think proximity weighs into that? Well,
0: I believe it does. I mean, as I mentioned, uh, the you know, the electromagnetic field strength is, Inversely proportional to the cube of the distance. So, unless it's the object is very close or the phenomenon is very close or, you know, or it's extremely strong, uh, that would be the case. But I mean, you get electromagnetic pulse from a nuclear weapon and that'll go out a long ways. I mean, that's, you know, they talk about that jamming and everything in electronic warfare, uh, electromagnetic pulse will go out a long ways. And, but it's extremely strong, but yeah, I I think it has to be fairly close to, to, to have a noticeable effect, but it, it might not take my, I don't know, I'm not, I don't claim, I do have a good background in physics, but electromagnetism is not something I'm really well versed in, but, you know, I, I just know that, and there's been, most of the cases that I have have been involved with vehicles, or radios, et cetera, uh, not too many power outages, but the one in Idaho is the one that that I remember the most. You know, you mentioned leveling. I can remember, I, I'm dating myself. I'll be 75 in a few weeks. I remember that case in November, 1957. It was in the national news and it created a big panic. It really did. There's right much, around the launch of Sputnik.
1: Yes, let's, let, let me break in here. Cause I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to take a break. We're running up against the, uh, the, the time limit again. Uh, so we'll, we'll take a break here. Um, I've, dealt with some of the Level Land stuff at my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. There's a search engine there. Just type in Level Land, and it'll bring up the articles that I've done on that. Or take a look for the book Level Land, which just came out not that long ago. And it deals in depth with the the Level Land sightings and everything that, that transpired around that as well. We will be back right after this with William Puckett talking about UFO. So please stick around. And welcome back. I am here with William Puckett. We're talking UFOs. We were talking electromagnetic effects, which I think is an interesting subset of the overall UFO picture, but it's a very rare occurrence when you're dealing with UFOs. But w- w- when we went away, you had mentioned you remembered the Level Land sightings from 1957, and uh, they were. Uh, I think the the Level Land sightings took place. At the time, the second Sputnik had been launched in 1957, but it hadn't gotten a lot of play. I know the Air Force and some of the people said, well, it was a result of Sputnik being launched and people responding to that in a hysterical way, I suppose. Um, But I really don't see the correlation because that hadn't been big news when the report started in the Leveland area. And I explore that in the Leveland book, so I guess we don't really need to go into that in depth. there are many of the subsets in ufos we talked a little bit about photographs we've talked a little bit about electromagnetic effects is there other aspects of it that you look for when, when you get reports other things that are common to uh, some of the ufo reports for example triangular ufos are those becoming more prevalent
0: i wouldn't say they're becoming more prevalent but they're definitely commonplace i mean i probably get uh, at least one or two triangular reports a week I get on an average of one case every two days, new cases. If I included old cases, I'd probably get at least a case a day. And I'd say of those subsets, I'd say 20% are triangles. I still get disc-shaped sightings, spherical objects, yellow orbs, you know. uh, And I have categories for all of those so that if I ever wanted to break down and do an analysis of percentages, you know, I could do that. And that's the nice thing about uh, using the MySQL database, which is the engine that runs WordPress. You can do the categorization. So yeah, yeah, there's, you know, dark triangles, um, you know, metallic objects and glowing objects. Uh, and, of course, I mean, there's the usual suspects, meteors, satellites, comets, astronomical phenomena, hoaxes. And, you know, I have categories for all of those. And then I, I look, there, there are a lot of objects that are regular, strange shape, un, not symmetrical shaped objects. Uh, like I mentioned the Libby Montana setting. What did I call it? I called it a Star Trek object. Because that's what it looked like. I mean, it' a really strange looking looking object. I, I've never seen anything like that before. Well, Unless I brought up
1: triangles. I brought up triangles because it seemed to me in the last 10, 12 years, uh, there've been many, many more triangle sightings than there were earlier on in the UFO phenomenon. And looking at the evolution of our military aircraft, for example, the F-111, the B-2 bomber, which are more or less triangular shaped, I wondered if the triangle, triangular shapes don't have a more mundane explanation, meaning an earth-based explanation that the people aren't used to seeing aircraft that have those kinds of strange shapes.
0: Well, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, I mean, actually a lot of triangle reports I get, they don't actually see the triangle. We'll see lights in a triangular formation. Sometimes you'll see a light, a red light in the center. And sometimes they're just conventional aircraft, I think, that people are seeing, or military aircraft. Uh, Yes, that's definitely the case. Of course, boomerang, which is somewhat like a triangle. I mean, elliptical. Sometimes I get uh, elliptical-shaped craft, oblong-shaped craft. But yeah, I I think a good percentage of triangles do have... uh, Conventional explanation, but I think some of them are definitely unidentified and some, of course, as you mentioned, we, we recently talked, uh, electromagnetic effects. You see, we're triangular objects and when they're silent and when they hover and then they streak away, when you look at some of those particular aspects of a sighting, then you got to put the unidentified tag on, you know, and, and maybe they are secret military craft. I don't know, but not all of them are, are have conventional explanations. But I say a good percentage of them do, based on the reports that I get.
1: Well, I would also point out that if you put three dots on a piece of paper, you're almost going to get a triangular formation That's right. That's a straight line.
0: That's right.
1: <laughs> and we have to we have to keep that in mind as well. That's right. Uh, when we're looking at these sorts of things. I just wonder how um, Uh, sophisticated some people are when they're viewing the sky, especially at night. I think they're fooled an awful lot by stars. I think they're, uh, you mentioned autokinesis, which is actually a movement in the eye as opposed to the object moving. It seems like it's dancing around and it's really a a motion of the eye. But I wonder how many of the sightings can be explained by by those sorts of mundane things, especially older sightings when we weren't nearly as uh, sophisticated as we are today.
0: Autokinesis accounts for a lot of things. This is particularly True. When people are looking at Venus and Jupiter, they'll they'll get it. They'll start videotaping it, and they'll jiggle the camera around, and they, hey, this thing is bouncing around. Then they'll look at the object, or Venus or Jupiter, and say, "Oh, it's moving around." They always say, "This you know, it'll stay in one area of the sky," which is a tip off right away. Another tip off is I see this every night, you know, and consecutive nights, you know, and and sometimes too, what'll happen. It's not always autokinesis. You can have a high cloudiness, uh, high thin cirrus clouds, and they're opaque enough to dim out, you know, maybe Venus or Jupiter or a star, and then and then they'll pass by, and then the people will see the object. That also can create some, uh, you know, very definite anomalies or optical illusions when you get high thin clouds. Uh, that's why I always like to look at the weather. Unfortunately, with well, the weather of this day and age, and I can say this as a professional meteorologist, when I was working for the National Weather Service, which was in the late 70s and early 80s, we took our own weather observations. Uh, we, we used a solometer to measure cloud depth. We estimated clouds, we took visibility. Nowadays, it's all automated. And automated observations are much less detailed and it'll say haze when in fact it's snowing. And the clouds, high clouds above uh, probably 10,000 feet aren't, aren't measured by, by the solometers at the automated stations. And they use satellites to measure higher clouds. So weather observations are much less detailed. Sometimes you gotta look at satellite photos too, which is sometimes what I do when I try to, to determine. And then of course I asked the wet, the witness, what was the weather? I mean, who's a better person to gauge the weather than the person that's uh, uh, seeing the UFO?
1: Was there a sighting that really struck your fancy? I mean, an exciting sighting that you have no explanation for that, that tips you maybe toward the extraterrestrial or an off-world type uh, explanation?
0: Well, I got a lot of them, but I I'd like to, discuss a recent case that I got that, as of yet, no one has given me an explanation. And I'm gonna go to my website. Uh, This happened in, I think, South Carolina. It was a very, I go to my home page here, page down here a bit. This happened in Bluffton, South Carolina, January 13th, 2022. And this person took, he took a video, which I haven't unpacked yet, but he took a photo and the object was floating. And it's really a strange looking object. It, it looks like a, a cylinder. And then there's kind of a ball on the uh, one side of it. And it's floating. And I said, well, could it be some sort of a balloon? But I don't know. I mean, it, it was heading slowly east northeast and I, I just have my doubts about this, what it was, and another case that I think is a, definitely an extraterrestrial spacecraft, this was a Dana Point, California, and I believe it was March 31st, 2007. Obviously, it strikes a chord, if I can remember that detail, uh, a, a guy was out walking one morning, I think it was 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning, and he saw this disc-shaped object flying south, and he attributed to jet speed. Suddenly, it just stopped in midair, and he took a photo of it, and then it just zipped away. And the photo, I've looked at this photo a number of times. It's clearly a disc-shaped craft. The metadata doesn't support any Photoshopping, I had some people in that area do some analysis for me, uh, you know to see if it could be hoax. That particular observation, that particular sighting, I really attribute as, as quite likely uh, a higher intelligence object. I really do. Uh, that, that's one that really sticks in my mind.
1: And what was, what was the date of that?
0: I think it was March 31st, 2007. And it would be on my old uh, website, but Dana Point, California. Dana Point is right south of Los Angeles International Airport. And as you probably know, Kevin, that that that's the area where uh, a lot of UFOs are seen coming in and in and out of the water, like Catalina Island off the coast of California. Uh, that that's that's an area where. Now, that I might add that. This particular witness didn't see this UFO going in and out of the water. Another case, and this is not well, a full, full. Let me case. let me interrupt
1: interrupt you because we're running out of time. I, I we just really, I'm sorry we don't have time to get into that. I'd love to love to hear about that. I could listen to these stories all day. Uh, give us your website once again.
0: It's www.ufosnw.com. And all the cases that I talked about on your show today, uh, people can find those cases, some on my homepage. Others, they'll have to click on some links, uh, you know, dates and times and locations to find uh, these other cases. But for the most part, they're all on my site that I discussed today.
1: Well, thank you for taking time with us today. I appreciate the effort (laughs) and certainly the conversation. I think it's always fascinating to listen to what other UFO researchers have to say about their experiences in UFO research. Uh, That was William Puckett. He's uh, got a nice website. it has got a lot of photographs up on it. And uh, we learned a little bit about his analysis and uh, what the criteria are for posting them on his website. So I think it's something we need to take a look at. And I mentioned a little bit earlier, I'm going to talk just a moment about that. I was invited to do a book called Understanding UFO. It'll be out in time for the 75th anniversary of the uh, Roswell case. And it's a little bit different than the other books because they go in depth into the backgrounds of some of the witnesses that were involved, the military witnesses, for example, in the Brazel family. So you get a better idea of who they were and um, how this affected them throughout their lives. Uh, whether or not it was important to them or not, that kind of thing, but that's called Understanding you, understanding Roswell, and the book that just came out not that long ago is called Level Land, and it deals with the electromagnetic effects around the Level Land Texas area, but also as it sort of expanded out from Level Land throughout the United States in uh, uh, 1957, and there's a a, a listing of cases, an appendix that's filled with cases starting in 1909, an electromagnetic case from 1909 and the stri- sighting of the strained object up through um, uh, not that long ago, of course, including animal reactions, which are part of the whole electromagnetic spectrum, uh, power outages, car stallings, and other compasses compass being affected. And I mentioned that specifically because a guy named Eric Herr had done his research was just looking for compasses being affected by a ufo and he came up with 140 or 150 cases like that and a lot of them are, are listed in the book as well next week i'm going to talk to jim haran who is the editor of the journal for scientific exploration and uh, what that's all about and what the journal encompasses and uh, his research into ufos he did i think one of the very first experiments. Uh, related to the Ramey memo, which uh, I assisted him with by the way, but it was um, providing students with an opportunity of three different types of scenarios and how they interpreted what, they, what was written in the, in the memo and uh, whether or not the, any conclusions can be drawn from that. So we'll be talking about that and his UFO experiences next week. As I say, I will be back in about 167 hours with another edition of A Different Perspective.